0: Shelby Love, The Beginning, the Middle, and the End. The End, Part One by Carl Marking. We settled into our new home midsummer of my 52nd year. Shelby had now been with me 10 years. Because she was a rescue, I never really knew her age, but most vets put her at 12. After work on our move in day, I set about unpacking the kitchen while Jim went to collect Shelby, Tucker, and Patience from my house and bring them permanently to our new home. What he thought would take only a few minutes took him close to four hours. Patience, as usual, refused to be collected. She had learned all the secrets of my house and avoided capture. Jim arrived well after dark, rattled, exhausted, sweaty, scratched, and hungry. Surprisingly, because it had taken her a full year to acclimate to Jim's house, Patience was the first to settle into our new home. She explored every inch and set about her preordained task of rubbing herself all over said inches. Tucker, though a nose on four legs when outdoors, was tentative about everything in the new house. His main concerns were finding his food bowl and a new favorite place to sleep the day away. Shelby was somewhere in the middle, She preferred to be near us, as she learned our new routine, and the best places to catch some sunlight and a nap. At this point, Shelby's main struggles were orthopedic and cardiological in nature. Her left hock would swell from time to time and she'd go lame on that leg, unable to bear weight. We invested in regular physical therapy, and she always managed to rebound and get back to walking around with us and enjoying the occasional short run with Tucker in the paddock. We spent the next year getting settled into the new place. COVID still had the world shut down, and Shelby could no longer tolerate a walk in a park without hurting her leg. So there were no trips or adventures for Shelby, just slow walks around the property and hanging out with us on the back patio at the end of the day. That fall, she began showing signs of sundowners. Every day at dusk, she would begin wandering around the first floor, repeatedly going to the door as if she wanted to use the bathroom. We'd open the slider, and she'd just stand there, sniffing, then turn around and go back into the family room. We'd all get settled, and she'd do it again. She woke us up one night barking from the home office down the short hall across from our bedroom where she slept. When we went in, she wasn't looking at anything in particular. She was just standing in the room, barking. We petted her, she started wagging her tail, then climbed into her bed and went to sleep. Do you think she's had a stroke? I asked Jim. I don't know. I ran it by Carrie, her physical therapy vet. I don't want to introduce any more meds into her system, I said. We have to be careful of her kidneys with all the anti-inflammatories she needs when her hock flares up. Carrie suggested I try a food called Bright Minds by Purina. She had some of her animals on it and believed it helped, so we gave it a try. Within a matter of weeks, Shelby was back to normal. That winter, her left hock became chronic. It would swell and rarely go all the way back to its normal state. She was able to walk, able to get up and down the stairs, and in the end, she figured out how to compensate for it on her own. That spring, Carrie suggested we look into buying a therapy bed she used on Shelby during her treatments. It emits an electromagnetic field that helps reduce inflammation, she said. I had worn something similar after my neck fuse, and Tucker had some success with that treatment for a palsy he had in his front leg. We ordered one. She hated it. As soon as we'd turn it on, she'd jump up and leave the room. If she were asleep, she'd wake up, slowly get up, and still leave the room. We had to wait for her to fall into a deep sleep, then quietly approach the unit and switch it on. Even then, it would often wake her up and she'd walk away. Well, it's doing something, I said to Jim one night. The unit had a preset 15-minute treatment, and she rarely made it to 10 minutes. She didn't care for the treatments, but she came to like the bed as a bed. With her hock in a constant state of distress, she was having trouble lifting her leg up and over the side of the plush bed she'd been sleeping in for years. The therapy bed was firm memory foam and about two inches thick. I covered it with a plush red and black plaid blanket, and she enjoyed sleeping on it as her main downstairs bed. She had grown generally uncomfortable by this point, as evidenced by her restlessness. She was at the age of arthritis and would change her positions every so often when sleeping in the office with us. She'd move back and forth from her plush bed and the rug. So we got her a couple of different styles of beds, and she'd rotate through them each day. It seemed a bit silly that Shelby now had five beds spread throughout the house, but it was the right decision, as she was back to dreaming and running in her sleep again. As for her heart, the huffing sound she made became more frequent with exertion. Brenda had heard a heart murmur at Shelby's spring checkup and had us make arrangements to see a cardiologist. He was able to see us at the beginning of July and performed an echocardiogram. He discovered her mitral and tricuspid valves were no longer fully closing. Her blood wasn't going where it should, when it should. A medication change helped, and she rebounded. On the eyesight front, the drops prescribed the year before by Dr. Lutz had greatly improved her vision. When her hot cooperated, she was easily navigating the stairs and back to keeping up with Jim and me for walks in the yard. At her eye follow-up later that month, we updated Dr. Lutz with the cardiologist's findings. She noted Shelby's cataracts had worsened and suggested we consider surgery. We were surprised by this news given we had noticed a big improvement in her vision, despite some mild clouding that was visible if you looked deep into her eyes. Not knowing any better, I'd always equated the clouding in my dog's eyes as the beginning of the end of quality of life. Years earlier, when Petunia was around the same age Shelby was now, She had been chasing a squirrel at dusk, at full speed. The squirrel ran through a chain-link fence to escape her, but Petunia, unable to see the fence in the failing light, hit it at full speed. The fence acted like a spring. The force of the impact tossed her backwards several feet, and she stumbled to the ground. Physically, she was fine, but she never ran at full speed again for the rest of her life. I asked if her echocardiogram changed her candidacy for surgery but she assured us the proper consultations would be done with Shelby's cardiologist and the clinic's anesthesiologist. At this point in my life, I had survived five infarct events, a four-level cervical fusion, open-heart surgery, and dozens of other orthopedic surgeries. I knew sometimes you had to put your trust and faith in a surgical team, not simply one surgeon. We decided to go ahead and have Shelby evaluated to see if she'd be a good surgical candidate and set the testing for August. All the tests came back in her favor. She has the retinas of a two-year-old, Dr. Lutz said. Dr. Lutz had presented us with the risks and assured us Shelby would be completely safe during the procedure. Afterwards, she would be on a couple of eye drops for the rest of her life, even if it was a complete success. It seemed a reasonable price to pay for giving her back her full vision. Shelby was always such a good patient. Every doctor she saw would remark on how tolerant she was of whatever had to be done. Drops wouldn't be a problem for Shelby. We settled on a date, but Dr. Lutz postponed. We picked another date. She postponed again. When we asked what was happening, she told us the anesthesiologist wanted a special piece of equipment, and Dr. Lutz was having difficulty getting it. Finally, the equipment arrived. The consultations with cardiology and anesthesiology were completed, and we set the date, November 4th. There were many medication changes and additions to manage prior to surgery, but given my medical history, and the fact that Jim had spent his entire career working in pharmaceutical distribution, it wasn't much of a concern. We dropped Shelby off early that morning. That afternoon, Dr. Lutz called and said Shelby was awake, and that Shelby was once again normally sighted in both eyes. She went on to say there was some normal post-op inflammation in her eyes, but it would clear up in a day or two with medication. Then she said that although Shelby's right eye had accepted the new lens, the lens capsule of her left eye was too fragile for implantation. Shelby could still see through that eye. Her right eye would simply become dominant, and her left would learn to accommodate. It was disappointing news, but Shelby's eyesight was better than prior to the surgery, so he took it as a win. Then Dr. Lutz said, anesthesia was challenging for her. She required a lot of support during it. She could not have general anesthesia again. She said her heart was delicate and sensitive. Jim and I exchanged concerned looks. She said they'd push all the records to Brenda and the cardiologist, told us Shelby had received a Manny Petty, and requested we pick her up at 7 o'clock that evening and bring her back first thing the next morning for her post-op checkup. When they brought Shelby out to us, she was wearing a clear, custom-made cone. The depth of the cone was appropriate for the length of her muzzle to keep her from pawing at her eyes, and it was clear to give her the best field of view. She had always been hypersensitive to sedation and was visibly unsteady. We gently lifted her up and put her in the back of the car in a dog bed with soft side rails to help her stay in place, and a low cutout on one side to accommodate the cone we knew she'd be wearing. She was, of course, drooling. The tech gave us a three-page summary of the surgery notes and home care instructions, then handed us a blue vinyl bag full of medications. Bring the pills with you at every visit so we can manage any changes or refills. Call if you see any of the things listed on page two, and keep a log of any unusual behavior, she said, and went back inside. It seemed odd they didn't keep her overnight, considering Dr. Lutz's comment about her difficulty with the anesthesia and her cardiac history. After all, we were bringing her back for the first checkup in about 12 hours. I read the handout the tech had given us as Jim drove us home. That's funny, I said. The encounter form reads, Shelby did very well with anesthesia. We got home and brought her into our well-lit kitchen where her food and water bowls were. Let's see those eyes, I said. Jim and I peered into her cone. They were crystal clear. They were as beautiful as I had remembered when she was young. The anxiety I didn't realize I'd been carrying lifted. She had no interest in water, so we put her on her favorite bed, under the TV in the living room off the kitchen. She tried to lay down, but the edge of the cone kept hitting the bedding. She'd hold her head up each time. What do we do about that? Jim asked. Based on past experience, she'll eventually get used to it and lay down on the thing. She's still stoned. If she can see clearly, her brain is probably processing a lot more visual data than usual. We petted her gently to encourage her to stay put, then went into the kitchen. Jim sat at the kitchen island and took out his tablet and pen, which were always nearby, and began mapping out her medication timeline. It was an around-the-clock schedule. Shelby was going to be in for a bit of a ride as she recovered. Jim was great with medication schedules. He'd done one for me after my open-heart surgery when I had so many pills at so many different times. He mapped them all out in a daily grid, and when he was finished, they covered half of my dining room table. She hesitantly entered the kitchen, her head held low because of the cone. When she tried to get a drink of water, she couldn't because of the depth of the cone and the position of the bowl. I got out a small dish, filled it with water, and held it inside her cone. She tentatively licked the water. It's okay, Shelby, I said. I can do this all night. We'll get you a more cone-appropriate water bowl tomorrow. Her cone was now dripping the drool on the floor as she tried to do a loop around the kitchen. She kept walking into things. She gave up trying to navigate the kitchen and found her way back to her bed in the living room. Once Jim finished the meds, we turned on the TV and stayed with her until she fell asleep. She had some meds due in the middle of the night, which Jim agreed to administer. He can fall asleep at will, but once I'm woken up, I'm up. The next morning we loaded Shelby and her blue bag of meds into the car and headed for the clinic. We reported Shelby had been walking into things the night before, and was having trouble finding a comfortable position to sleep in because of the cone. Her checkup showed the expected inflammation in both eyes, and pressures under 5 millimeters of mercury. We had learned from Dr. Lutz that normal was anything 25 and under, she considered the surgery a complete success, and our next appointment was set for one week later. The day after her surgery was the beginning of her full-on, at-home eye drop routine. We had to wait five to ten minutes between each different type of drop, then wipe her eyes with special towelettes at the very end of the process to keep them from crusting. The cone left little room for my big hands, and Jim was able to get to Shelby's eyes with no problem. Congrats, you're the drop man, I said. Okay, Shelby, he'd say at the start of each drop. Let me see those pretty eyes. She disliked every single drop and truly hated the eye wipes. But she tolerated all of it, for us. Good girl, he'd conclude. And then she'd get breakfast, dinner, or a treat, depending on the time of day. Later that same day, Shelby began walking into walls. We called the practice. They assured us it was normal cone behavior. She's been in cones before and has never walked into walls, I said. We were advised to stay the course. The following day, same thing. We called again. She's still walking into things. Based on prior experience with her, this is not her version of cone behavior. We'd like to bring her in for a pressure check. The practice used a portable handheld device to do pressure checks. The whole process took under a minute. They refused to let us bring her in. I don't understand it, Jim. It says right here in their quick reference guide that we can schedule pressure checks Monday through Friday and occasionally Saturdays. Why would they push back on something so simple and so important? I don't know, he said. Shelby continued walking into walls and objects straight on. The cone wouldn't even have been a factor in a head-on collision, as nothing was occluding her view of the things she walked into. We continued to call. They continued to deny us pressure checks. The night before our second checkup, Shelby fell down the short set of three steps into her family room. She had never done that before. Even on medications, she found particularly sedating. When I got her up, I noticed some cloudiness in her right eye and took her into the kitchen with its brighter lighting to get a better look. Her pupils weren't reacting evenly to the light, and one looked larger than usual. This was something I was rather familiar with, as the pupil of my right eye would sometimes change size and even shape since my strokes. I'm going to email and send a picture, I said. By the time we got Shelby settled in a place where we could take a picture, Her pupils had evened out, but the clouding in her eyes was visible. I sent the email and explained what had happened. Dr. Lutz called us that evening. I know you don't trust me on this, but I'm telling you, in a few days this will resolve. And then said something about it not being entirely surprising given Shelby's age-related retinal deterioration. That was news, I thought, as we hung up the phone. I turned to Jim. How did we get from, Shelby has the retinas of a two-year-old dog, before surgery, To her, just trying to remind us she has age-related retinal deterioration. I don't know, Jim said. That's the first I heard her say it. The next morning, we loaded Shelby and her blue bag of meds into the car and headed for the clinic. Shelby had lost vision in her right eye. This information was delivered in the same breath we were told her retina was fine and that there was hope her vision could return or that it could be permanently lost. Shelby's pressures had gone from less than five in each eye to 31 in her right and 23 in her left. Her right eye was six points above the upper limit. It was so high, in fact, that Lutz had to drain some fluid from it to bring the pressure down. We practically begged you for a pressure check, I said. No response. Her next visit was scheduled for five days later. I was despondent. All the medical drama I had been through, all the self-advocacy I had learned to do, and I failed to advocate hard enough for Shelby. Had I learned nothing from my own eye issues? I felt I had betrayed her. I felt I put my faith so completely in this doctor, I ignored my better instincts. We didn't have much else to say on the matter the rest of the evening. The next morning we were in the car on our way home for running errands when a friend of ours called. I put her on speaker. Hey Jackie, you're on the air with Carl and Jim. Carl. Jim. Harriet died this morning. I just heard. Jim pulled the car over. We were stunned. If anyone else had told me this, I would have thought it was a cruel joke. Harriet was 81 and had every intention of being the first in her family to make it to 100. Something she said regularly, even to her older siblings, who did not find it as amusing as she did. She'd been saying it for years. We were all convinced she'd do just that. Harriet hadn't been feeling well that Friday and was taken to the hospital and died early Saturday morning. Jim and I were supposed to have breakfast with her on Sunday. When my ex and I had reconciled all those years ago, we bought the house two doors down from Harriet. We were in the car, driving the alley behind our houses, and she waved us down. Hi, I'm Harriet. We introduced ourselves. I want to get one thing straight. I'm an old black woman, and you will do what I tell you. We must have looked surprised because she began laughing. She had a larger-than-life laugh that came from deep inside her. She was only in her 60s at the time, so not so old, but she sure knew how to command an audience. She and I became unlikely friends, and over time, became best friends. I'm not sure either one of us understood how that happened. We shared countless meals, adventures, wine, trouble, and endless laughter. By the time I bought my house, after my ex and I had split for the second time, he and I had found our way to friendship, and the three of us broke into the place the night before settlement. We brought wine, cheese, and crackers. The seller had allowed me to move a few things in early, and we dragged boxes into the living room to use as seats, lit a fire in the fireplace, and opened the wine. A police car drove down the street in front of the house, and we had a moment of panic, concerned a neighbor had called and reported a break-in. But I kept on going down the street. My ex and I broke into relieved laughter. You all go ahead and laugh. If the police find us in here, they'll take my black ass to jail, Harriet said, and the three of us all laughed. I shouldn't be laughing, she said, and grew more serious. Y'all know it's true. We stopped laughing, looked at each other, and simultaneously broke out laughing all over again. That's how our time together always was, full of laughter and frank observations about the realities of life. Harry and I once traveled to England together. When she spent a year in Namibia, volunteering as a teacher, I looked out for her house. She took care of my dogs when I needed a hand. She'd known Willow since she was a puppy. She took my ex's cat in when he moved to New York. And she had been there for Shelby that first year, when she was so sick. We spent most Halloweens together, handing out candy on the steps of my front porch. If she had the time after work, she'd get dressed up in a costume first. When children would come up the very steep and long staircase to my front door, it would go something like this. Trick or treat, and what are you? she'd ask. If they didn't say anything, or said they didn't know, and reached for her candy, she'd say something like, Oh no, you don't get any candy if you don't even know who you are for Halloween. You should know who you are if you're going to be somebody other than yourself. And she'd cluck her tongue at them. She almost always relented, and let them have the candy. Occasionally she'd say, Trick! the child would look confused. You said trick-or-treat. I want to see your trick. Only one child that came up those steps in all the years that I can remember was able to come up with a trick on the spot. Most just stared at her, confused. Kids should know what they're asking, she'd say. She'd love the devil people and always spoke her mind. She'd say things like, Hmm, this one can barely make it up the steps. They don't need any candy. And then just as quickly say, Who am I kidding? I couldn't make it up those steps either. And her laugh would come. Willow and Shelby would observe from the front porch, sticking their heads through the long windows on either side of the porch door. Willow was tall enough to sit down and rest hers on the sill. Shelby had to stand on her hind legs and rest her paws on the sill. She'd grow tired, go back inside, lay down, then come back every so often just to see if she was missing anything. Harriet joined me and my ex for Thanksgiving most of the years since we'd met her. Even after he moved to New York, if I drove up, she'd often come along with me. When he and I stopped celebrating Thanksgiving together, it became Harriet my tradition. Most of the memories I have of that house and living in that city are linked to her. When Jim came along, she welcomed him into the unique family she and I had formed. She adored Jim. We were always rotating between houses for dinners. Jim had a tradition of hosting his sister and her family and his parents for Easter each year. He'd fill plastic eggs with candy and set up an Easter egg hunt for his nephew and nieces. When I came along, I'd help him set up, hide the plastic eggs, and then I'd cook for everyone. The years Harriet would join us, we'd put out special eggs just for her. I don't need any more candy, she said that first year and patted her stomach. Some of yours have money, I said back. Ooh, where's my basket? She asked as she stood up. She'd let out that big, beautiful laugh. Jim's parents were long divorced, and Harriet had always referred to his father as my boyfriend. Will my boyfriend be there? She'd ask. She'd sit beside him most times they were together and flirt with him. They came to truly care for one another over the years. Most any time she and I were alone, after Jim had come into my life, she would say, Don't you screw this up, Carl! and not laugh. I'm serious. You mess this up and so help me God. I don't plan to, I'd say. And she'd give me this smile. Her youngest son once told me she'd often say, "That Carl gets on my last nerve sometimes, but I don't know what I'd do without him." That was high praise from Harriet. When the shock of the news wore off, Jim pulled back onto the road, and we began to cry. Harriet's children arrived in town her eldest, Bill, her second son, Sean, and her daughter, Melanie. Sean's wife, Molly, was also there. I knew Harriet's children so well. We'd been together so often over the years. They were family to me. Jim and I invited them to dinner at our place that Monday. Harriet was the glue to our union. I knew that honoring her life was probably going to be the last time we'd all be together. As we had appetizers and drinks in the kitchen, Sean got up and wandered the first floor. When he came back, he had tears in his eyes. What's wrong? Someone asked. Mom's everywhere here, he said. And she was. Jim and I had pictures of her and the three of us, as well as all the things she'd given us over the years, in almost every room. As a Valentine's Day gift one year, she gave Jim and I solar-powered bobblehead dolls of Cupid and the devil. You know which one is for which, she said, and laughed that glorious laugh. The devil was clearly for me. I was consumed with grief, for Shelby's eyes, for the loss of my best friend. We'd spent 16 years of our lives in one another's company, and she was more like family to me than anyone I'd ever known. That depth of bond, when forged by choice, is richer than any other. There would be no way to fill the hole she was leaving in my life and my heart. She had already invited Jim and me to her house for Thanksgiving that year, not even two weeks away. It was unusual for her to host though she had the previous year as well. She got such pleasure out of feeding people and surrounding herself with those she loved. She would sit at the end of her dining room table closest to the kitchen to make sure no one ran out of anything. I'd occasionally catch her watching her guests eat the food she made for them, wearing a small, secret smile, hidden behind her glass of red wine as she sipped it, drinking in the moment. Her funeral was scheduled for the following Saturday, the 20th. On the 17th, Shelby had her two-week post-op appointment. Once again, we loaded her and her meds into the car and drove to the clinic. The tech came out and asked for any updates about Shelby's behavior and collected the medication bag. If I understand things, I said as I handed her the bag, everything about Shelby's vision comes down to inflammation. But you haven't refilled her rimadil since the first weekend after surgery. You haven't been giving her rimadil? Why not? Because you only dispensed enough to get her through the first three days and the instructions were to administer until finished, which we did. It hasn't been in the pill bag you review every visit since her second follow-up. She said nothing and moved to the back of the car to get Shelby. She's not seeing well today, I said. Could you carry her? She'll be fine, the tech said, and proceeded to walk Shelby, chest first, into a high concrete curb, then pulled her up onto the sidewalk by her leash. I spent that visit sitting in my car, thinking how to say something that conveyed what I saw, while not opening Shelby up to some kind of retaliation. When she brought Shelby back to the car, I met them at the back hatch. If it's easier for you, I can carry Shelby and meet you at the door the next time. She knew what I was referring to and couldn't make eye contact. The whole thing was maddening. We would show up for an appointment with our geriatric post-op pet and wait in the parking lot for up to three hours beyond our scheduled appointment before they'd come collect her. On multiple occasions, medications they had introduced or modified would be discussed, but not make it into the medicine bag. We'd be on our way home, or arrive home, only to discover they were missing and have to drive the hour-long round trip to pick them up. Our consistent feedback was that she kept walking into things, and our consistent ask was for more frequent pressure checks. After the disconnect with Rimadyl, Lutz stopped talking to us directly. She relayed all information through her staff or via email. Her first email, all the 1,100 words of it, came on the 19th. It was the single longest communication we'd received from the practice to date. She painted us as emotional and confused and memorialized things that had and hadn't happened. We were not confused. Shelby's eye pressures were all over the place. She had to have her right eye drained of fluid to bring the pressure down at the one-week follow-up visit. A pressure so high, her optic nerve was now at risk. She had to have an anti-inflammatory medication injected into her right eye. Our early concerns had been consistently dismissed as cone behavior, and they denied our daily requests for simple pressure checks that first week. The only good news was that we were finally able to remove Shelby's cone. The following day was Harriet's funeral. I had asked Bill if I could say a few words in her honor. He checked with the family and they agreed. When Jim and I arrived at her viewing, my ex was there and the three of us sat together. We had had a falling out, but we set aside our animosity to honor Harriet and made small talk about people we knew in the room. There was a slideshow of Harriet's life playing on a monitor as we waited for the service to start. Jim and I had gotten married in our front yard that spring. COVID was still raging, so we kept things small six people. We invited Jim's parents and Harriet all three of whom were in high-risk categories, as well as Mary Ellen and her husband Bill, and finally a mutual friend of ours. Harriet arrived dressed to the nines as she did for any event. We completed the entire thing in under 30 minutes. She told us how much she loved us, and how happy she was to have been part of our wedding. As soon as she finished her cake, she asked, Okay, can I leave now? She was very concerned about catching COVID and ruining her plans to make it to 100. Of course you can. We're so glad you could be here, we said. And we gave each other awkward hugs, wearing masks. Okay, bye, she said, laughed, and immediately turned and walked to her car. The family had decided to include a couple pictures of our wedding in the slideshow. We were honored that they had. The service began. When they asked if anyone had something to say about Harriet, I practically bolted to the podium. Harriet had asked me to speak at her retirement, she had held the Bible for me at my swearing-in for city council. I was asked if I would say a few words at her 70th birthday party. And by God, I was going to say my final words for her, even if I had to shove someone else aside to do it. She'd have loved that, by the way. We all know we're going to die, I began. But I don't think we all know how to live. Harriet knew. I don't think I have ever known anyone who knew how to live as broadly, as deeply, as meaningfully, as richly, as loudly, as truthfully, or as impactfully as Harriet. I told the story of the first time she'd introduced herself. A friendship began that evolved and deepened year after year. We spent most every Thanksgiving together since we met. I was touched to have been included in her Christmas celebrations with her family. We ate breakfast out almost every Sunday together for years. We handed out candy on the front porch of my house most of the 13 years I lived there. We even traveled to England once and dined with the British Lord in his manor. There was some mumbled surprise from people in attendance. She'd have loved that too. We were the most unlikely pair, but our friendship deepened to family. Over the years, I had the great pleasure of breaking bread and celebrating joys and sorrows with her siblings, her children, her grandchildren, and so many of you mourning and celebrating her today. I am grateful to have been so close to Harriet and to have enjoyed the pleasure of her Harrietness. But mostly, I'm honored to have called her friend and to have been called friend by her in return. She lived her life. She lived it her way. She lived it in service and in grace. She got into good trouble, and every so often, just to keep things interesting, she'd get into some bad. May we all be so fortunate as to follow her example. And that's all I have to say about Harriet. Even with all of Shelby's ups and downs, Lutz didn't alter Shelby's post-op schedule and made us wait another five days for the next pre-established checkup date. The tech came out to collect Shelby and her medications. You can't speak with Dr. Lutz today. Given her email the week before, and the fact that this was supposed to be a tech visit, not a doctor visit, per their post-op care schedule, We hadn't expected to speak with her. It felt odd for the tech to specifically point it out. However, we were in full advocacy mode now and had questions. I asked some of Shelby's other care providers how to get around the whole not speaking to the doctor thing, and one suggested we write out our questions and hand them to the tech when they collected Shelby. Here, have Dr. Lutz answer these, please, I said and handed our questions to the tech. We'll wait. A different tech brought Shelby out and let her stumble off the same high concrete curb. She gave us the bag of medicines and Lutz's written answers. Buried in one of her responses was a glimmer of hope. Shelby's right eye has some weak, inconsistent vision. It may or may not continue to get better from here, she wrote. We drove home. When Jim mapped out the med schedule to the actual pill counts, we discovered the amount of Rimadyl they'd given us would run out four days before her next visit. Another hour-long round-trip to the clinic. Her next visit was November 30th. Although we should have had a conversation with the doctor at that visit, she didn't speak with us. Instead, late that evening, she sent us a 1,500-word email with contradictions and inaccuracies. She once again memorialized conversations that had and hadn't happened. She began a couple of sentences with, As I explained to you previously, and would then document something that had neither been discussed nor included in our encounter forms. She continued to paint us as emotional and incapable of understanding what was going on. Then, even though inflammation was constantly discussed as the single biggest risk to Shelby's recovery, she outlined her plan for us to begin tapering off three of her anti-inflammatory medications. She also wrote she would not check Shelby's eye pressure for two to three weeks following that change. Jim and I discussed the email, and decided we needed to push back. Our careers taught us the importance of correcting information that has been incorrectly memorialized. The content of her email forced us to respond. Our response covered our consistent requests following surgery to be allowed to bring Shelby in for a pressure check, and how she wouldn't allow us to do so. We stated our belief that had we been allowed to bring her in for pressure checks, we could have changed the outcome entirely for Shelby. We stated our position that it was our job to report what we saw and advocate for Shelby, just as it was her job to ensure the safety and welfare of her eyes. We wrote we weren't comfortable delaying her pressure checks for as long as three weeks given the past four, and asked for weekly pressure checks given she wanted us to step down her anti-inflammatory meds. Her 1,400-word response came late in the evening the following day. She began by expressing her concern at our inability to understand Shelby's situation and ended by recommending we establish care with another provider. Lutz had last documented Shelby's eye pressures at 14 in her right and 12 in her left and noted Shelby was now irrevocably blind in her right eye. She ended her email with phone numbers and names of other ophthalmologists and a generic website where we could search for care providers. She did nothing to arrange for Shelby's continuity of care. She tossed us some names, numbers, a website, and turned her back on a patient who had been in and out of crisis since she operated on her. She began her next paragraph with, We all care about Shelby. This is not what care looks like, I thought. Jim called every emergency clinic in the Tri-State area close enough for Shelby to realistically handle the drive. We shared what we were going through with our neighbors, Angie and Brad, and they had told us about their animal ophthalmologist, Nikki. Angie had a horse, Nikki had worked on it, and she felt she'd be perfect for Shelby. Nikki had good credentials and had, in Angie's eyes, demonstrated a genuine commitment to providing quality and empathetic care. As it turned out, Carrie also knew Nikki. Apparently, Nikki was starting to hold office hours at a vet clinic expanding into ophthalmology. This meant she'd most likely have openings in her schedule. Nikki came with strong recommendations from two people we knew who had first-hand experience with her, one as a client and one as a colleague, and she was able to see us in a week's time. Saturday, two days after Lutz abandoned Shelby as a patient, her eyes began to cloud and her right pupil was again visibly larger than her left. I have since come to learn this can be a symptom of increased eye pressure in dogs and humans. Carrie worked her network and got us in with someone at an emergency clinic. They can't actually treat her, she said. But they can at least check her eye pressures so you know what's happening. Just four days after implementing Lutz's anti-inflammatory step-down, both of Shelby's eyes had clouded. The pressure in her right eye had spiked from 14 to 42. It was her highest pressure yet. I think we need to roll all of her meds back to where they were the last time her pressure spiked and her eyes clouded, I said to Jim. He agreed, and we did just that. Shelby's eyes didn't get any cloudier. Saturday night, Jim found an ophthalmologist who worked at an emergency clinic on Sundays, 15 minutes away. Shelby was seen that Sunday. He assured us we'd done the right thing in rolling her meds back, and in just one day, her pressures were down to 7 in her right eye and 11 in her left He mapped out what we needed to do and look out for in order to get Shelby safely to her appointment with Nikki on December 9th. Never have I received a better lesson in intention versus impact than from our decision to have Shelby's cataracts removed. We intended to restore her sight and instead we took what little sight she had in her right eye away completely and forever. We didn't do this directly, but we made the decision, selected the surgeon and were too slow to realize our faith and trust had been misplaced. The if-only list that I occasionally cycle through in my head is cruel. If only I'd caught on faster. If only I'd thought of taking her somewhere else in those early days. If only there hadn't been a pandemic raging. If only I'd been better, smarter, more objective, less trusting. Since surgery, Shelby had been lethargic, was panting, making weird huffing-sneezing-coughing noises, and occasionally walking in loops around the kitchen island, the way Katie had done at her end. Shelby had a long history of circling the kitchen island, looking for food scraps as I used the island to prep meals. But every time she did this after her surgery, I couldn't help but assume she was in pain. The ninth was a full day for Shelby. She had her second echocardiogram in the morning, and the two-hour round-trip drive to see Nikki in the evening. I wrote a detailed note of what Shelby's symptoms and meds were and told the cardiologist about our emergency vet clinic visit for her eyes. I handed him the note. It had each visit date and each cardiac medication adjustment Lutz had made. As he read the note, I said, We received no detail from Dr. Lutz about the surgery, except that she felt Shelby could not survive general anesthesia again. She came out of surgery with a cough-wheeze-sneeze combo that comes and goes, and we noticed last night that her feet were cold, which is unusual for her. Let's see how Shelby's doing. I'll be back in a bit. And he took her back for her test. The echo showed that her heart was now enlarged, and although her mitral and tricuspid valves were stable, they were still insufficient, and incapable of fully closing and correctly directing and pumping her blood. He readjusted her meds and said we should follow up in six months, or if anything changes. That evening, we made the trip to the new ophthalmologist. When we arrived, Shelby was road-weary and drooling. We'd put her through so much, and she quietly accepted all of it. We set her on the grass so she could pee. Marking the world was still her prime directive. She wasn't able to navigate the dark parking lot, so we carried her inside. While we waited in the exam room, Shelby began violently shaking, the way she had after Willow had died. Nikki entered the room and introduced herself. We had prepared a short summary of what had been done in the timeline. She'd already received the cardiologist's notes from her echo earlier that day. When she finished reviewing our timeline, we gave her the chart we'd put together of her current medicine routine, what was given, how much, how often, and when, for each of the 12 medications. This is great. Thanks for laying it all out like this. She reviewed it and asked a couple of clarifying questions. Okay, she said. Let's see what's going on with Shelby here. She knelt down in front of Shelby, as I had done the day I found her. She put her hand on Shelby's back, and the second she touched her, I mean the second, Shelby stopped shaking and visibly relaxed. Tears welled in my eyes. I was emotionally and physically exhausted from everything Shelby had to endure the past month. But in that moment I knew, this was the person for Shelby. The clarity of it was palpable. But it was not a good news visit. Her eye pressure in her right eye was back up to thirty-nine. The damage to her optic nerve was now visible through the retina. Although I had held out for some, there was just no hope for Shelby's eye. At this point, the only way to stabilize Shelby's right eye was to destroy part of it through a procedure called a chemical ablation. In theory, it would permanently control her eye pressure by limiting the amount of fluid in it. Less fluid, less pressure. It had a 60% success rate. When her eye pressure spikes like this, it's very painful for her, like a terrible migraine, Nikki explained. She wondered if perhaps some of Shelby's behavior abnormalities were pain-related. I'm going to need to drain some of the fluid from her eye to bring her pressure down tonight. The ablation will hopefully stabilize her pressure permanently. It may also cause her eye to shrink and be slightly smaller than her left. She gave us a moment to process that. If this doesn't work, she paused her eye will have to be removed. And that was my floor. It was clear to me Shelby wouldn't be able to tolerate general anesthesia, and removing her eye wasn't something that could be done under a local. Her heart had worsened, and I couldn't justify the risk. I did not want her life to end in crisis, and I didn't want to subject her to any more surgery. If the chemical ablation of her eye didn't work, the only thing I could do in good conscience was let her go. I was struggling not to cry given all she'd been through, and was now about to go through. Is it painful, the ablation? I asked. Not at all. I'll use as mild a sedative as necessary, and the eye will be anesthetized. I'll administer the injection, we'll keep her for observation most of the day, and you can take her home that evening, so long as everything goes as expected. I turned to Jim. So? We both had tears in our eyes. It sounds as if this is the only option, he said. Okay, I said, turned back to Nikki. Let's get her scheduled. She drained some fluid from her eye and modified her medications a bit. Here's my cell phone, she said. If you have any questions or concerns, text me. It may take me a while to respond, but know that I will. Her offer of direct access was a huge relief given our last experience. We made the appointment for the procedure. Just four days away, loaded Shelby back into the car and headed for home. She can't survive general anesthesia, I said to Jim in the darkened car. He remained quiet. If this doesn't work, I think we should put her down. I started crying. He reached out and took my hand. I agree, he said finally. The next day I left a message asking Brenda to call me. I brought her up to speed on our visit with Nikki. Carl, you had Shelby's eye surgery because you thought you were doing the right thing for her with the information you had and you're doing the right thing for her now. There's no other option short of taking her eye and she can't have general anesthesia again. My special brand of poison when I'm feeling truly low is to apply current information to my past decisions and beat myself with it. Monday morning we loaded Shelby into the car and headed to the clinic. When we arrived, we took a minute with her before lifting her out of the car. We gave her long pets and told her that we loved her. We did our best to keep our tones light and happy, though it was unclear how much she could hear these days. I hate to tell you this, sweet pea, but you have another cone in your future, I said. Jim put her on the grass for a pea, and we went inside. We have just a couple things for you to sign, the woman at the counter said. There's a consent to do the procedure, and we need you to indicate whether or not you want us to resuscitate Shelby if she goes into cardiac arrest. What? I asked. She repeated herself. I understood the question. I simply hadn't expected it. Can we have a minute? I asked. Of course. In my mind, I was suddenly in my orthopedic surgeon's office. I want you to get your affairs in order before your surgery, he said. Like arranging for a ride and having help at home? I asked. No, I mean your will, a durable power of attorney, and your advanced medical directives, so I know what your wishes are should something go wrong. Obviously I don't expect that it will, but as I understand it, you're single and have no close family? Yes, I said. All the more reason to have these things on record. You just never know. He was about my age and had lost his wife to cancer not that long ago, given the context I knew he was sincerely looking out for my best interests. I took his advice and met with an attorney. It was a lonely period in my life. I wanted to be sure I had someone to make the right decisions regarding finding Willow and Shelby Holmes. I knew I didn't want to be on life support or a feeding tube, but I surprised myself when I realized I did not want to be resuscitated. At that point in my life, I thought if something went so horribly wrong with my neck fuse that my heart gave out, I will have had enough. "'What do you think?' Jim asked me. "'I could feel my tears coming as we stood in the lobby full of strangers, "'waiting with their pets. "'I think,' and my tears came, "'if she goes into cardiac arrest, we should let her go.' "'He could only nod his agreement. "'His lips mashed together in an effort to maintain his composure. "'We signed the paperwork and left. "'Several hours later, we got the call. "'Everything went fine.' Shelby was a love and is sleeping off the medications. You can pick her up this evening at seven. And once again, I burst into tears having gotten a call from a vet that Shelby was fine. I'm such a leaker, I said to Jim, who smiled and gave me a hug. We picked her up and brought her home. She had a new cone, some medication changes, and was very groggy. We were startled to see that the middle part of the normally white section of her right eye had become bright blood red between the clinic and home. I texted Nikki with our concern and a picture. Within 15 minutes, she responded and explained it was normal and apologized for not preparing us for that. The top is where the needle went in. The bottom is white, so I think this is just gravity pulling the blood down from the top of the eye. It had been seven weeks of surgery, medication, pain, panting weird breathing, cones, and drives that were just too long for her body and condition. A few days before Christmas, I texted Nikki with the magic question. Is it okay to bathe her? She hadn't had a bath since before her cataract surgery on November 4th. Yes, absolutely, Nikki replied immediately. When we renovated the house, we had a stainless steel dog bath installed in the heated garage. It had a ramp, a spray wand, and all the things to make the process easy for dog and owner. Jim took her out to the bath. I was going to go out and join them, but I heard him talking to Shelby just as I was about to enter the garage, and I stopped to listen. Just as I had done the day I brought her home from the shelter over a decade ago, I could hear Jim narrating what he was doing as he bathed her in an even, loving tone. I let them have their time together, but listened from the hall. I know, Shelby, he said. Baths are no fun, but let's get you cleaned up. Here comes the water. How's the temperature? Is it warm enough? Is that too much? Let me turn that down a bit. That does feel nice, doesn't it? I'm just going to put my hand over those pretty eyes of yours to keep the soap out. Good girl. Let's give you a nice massage while I clean you up. That's not so bad, is it? Okay, are you ready? Final rinse, and then you're free. I heard the water shut off, and he must have moved her to the floor to dry her off. Give me a shake. And I could hear her shake her wet ears flopping against her head as she did so. Good girl, he said. Now let's get you dried off. I went quickly back to the kitchen before he came in. He opened the door, and Shelby did the closest thing to a trot that she could manage as she ran down the hallway toward the kitchen, looking happy and ready for her post-bath treat. Now that Shelby was out of immediate danger, we picked up with our attorney in January. Her recommendation was to have their firm ghostwrite the request for Shelby's records, and then Jim and I would sign the request and mail it, which we did just before Valentine's Day. As we waited for them, I took the time to print out our phone records. I also printed out every email exchange and gathered up every note we'd taken, every encounter form, every piece of literature we'd been given, and put it all aside as it could wait. Shelby was more important. Eventually, Lutz's practice called, and Jim went and picked up the records. Things were difficult for Shelby for a long time. She had five different eye drops, four of which had to be administered three times a day, so none of us had gotten a full night's sleep since the night before her cataract surgery. Around my 54th birthday, and Shelby and my 12-year anniversary, her right eye began to darken and lost its amber hue, but she still had it, and that's all that mattered to me. It took fully six months and so many medication adjustments, but Shelby's right eye pressure finally settled into a consistent zone. A couple of weeks later, her right eye looked off to me. There was something about it I didn't like, but couldn't articulate. I texted a picture to Nikki. We had some back and forth, and she determined Shelby's eye was developing an ulcer on the cornea. We can address it with medication, Nikki texted. Two days later, we got an email from the clinic where Shelby's cataract surgery had been done. They were writing to inform us that the clinic was closing. The very next day, I replied with one word, good. These random changes in Shelby's right eye were its new normal. There was always something, an ulcer, mineral deposits, swollen inner eyelid, squinting, blinking, shielding, and occasionally changes to its size. The condition of her eyes could change within hours, and we had to pay close and constant attention. There were always medication adjustments to treat each change. It took eight months from the original cataract surgery date to figure out how to manage her eyes' moods, but we were eventually able to get Shelby onto a twice a day eye drop routine at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Nikki was amazing dedicated, accessible, flexible. Shelby was amazingly tolerant of everything. Our willingness to support Shelby like this was our labor of love for her. If she could persevere, so could we. The next month, July, Shelby had her follow-up appointment with cardiology and another echocardiogram. The upper chambers of her heart have ballooned and her valve has failed. She could go into crisis at any time. What kind of crisis? Any number of cardiac events, from heart attack to stroke. Her lungs could fill with fluid and she could drown. I would say she has three months left. I'm going to add a diuretic to get as much fluid off her heart as possible. You should limit her going up and down the stairs. This was hard news. I had made a promise to myself she would not die in crisis. I was going to have to break the news to Jim. He had a work conflict and couldn't come with me to the appointment. I told him that night, and we both cried. This was not the end-of-life experience we had wanted for her. Brenda called the next day. I heard, she said. When I got back from the appointment, I called Laps of Love to discuss euthanizing her. I wanted to get on their radar and find out how it all works. I want to do it here at the house, and I know you don't offer that service anymore. We gave her the diuretic at the full dose the cardiologist recommended, but she was up peeing all night long. Which is probably great for her heart, but not so great for her body or anybody's sleep. How do you feel about us starting her on a low dose and then finding the right balance and working our way up? Well, knowing her, she'll have some unexpected reaction. so sure. Start low, see what you get. You can always go up from there. What will our cue be that we need to increase the medication? She'll have trouble breathing, or you'll hear water in her lungs as she breathes. Everything was coming too quickly. Brenda, how will I know when it's time? I don't want to take time away from her. I don't want her to suffer. And I don't want her to die in crisis. Make a chart, Brenda said. Write down all the things you feel are the core things that define her quality of life and check them off each day. It's the only way to be sure you're seeing clearly. I shared this with Jim, and he agreed it was solid advice. Our daily list had 12 items Is she eating? Is her vision okay? Is her cognition stable? Did she wag her tail? Is her behavior normal? Is she eliminating waste? Is she mobile? Is she drinking the normal amount of water? Is her energy normal? Is her breathing clear? We wanted to balance her basic bodily function against her quality of life. For her cognition and behavior, it came down to things like, was she aware of and engaging with us? Was she curious about the world around her? Was she playful, in an age-appropriate way, and according to her ability? It took us a while to come up with what was a pass and what was a fail but it gave us somewhere to start. Each evening, we'd review the chart and give her a score. I started watching her every move, hypervigilant to the smallest change. What was that noise? What's her resting heart rate? When was the last time she barked? Is she drinking enough water? What's her urine output? We kept her routine as stable as possible. We kept up with PT each week, as that was her biggest hurdle. When her left hock would swell and she had difficulty bearing weight on it, She'd compensate with her right front leg and develop this hitch in her gait. Carrie was amazing. Shelby would get massage, a little chiropractic, acupuncture, laser treatment, and a session on the electromagnetic bed. We also kept up with her eyes through text messages and pictures, trying to save as much wear and tear on her body as possible. We limited physical trips to Nikki for when things got weird, which they did. One day at PT, it was just Shelby, me, Carrie, and her tech, John, I was asking everyone this question by now. How will I know when it's time? I don't want her to suffer. Getting old isn't necessarily suffering, Carrie said. I know she's not running around like either of you would like, meaning either me or Shelby. But she's not suffering. You're doing literally all you can do, and she's okay. We were doing all we could do for her, and she was passing her checklist every day. My one piece of advice for you, Carrie began and paused. Don't mourn her while she's still alive. You'll miss her life if you're too focused on her death. I gave that a great deal of thought, and her comment helped snap me out of watching Shelby's every single move. Jim and I agreed to stop with a checklist for a while. We needed to look at the big picture, not the weeds. Shelby's medication routine kept our lives on a rigid schedule, especially the diuretic. We had reminders on both our phones for all her drops and pills to make sure nothing got missed. Even though the world was beginning to reopen post-COVID, ours remained fairly small. Our focus was Shelby. Her medication was too involved to ask a friend or a dog sitter to take it on, though in a pinch we knew we could count on Brad and Angie. They'd been through this with their own animals. Anytime Shelby needed to go up or downstairs, we'd carry her, She'd stand at the top or the bottom of the steps, and we'd scoop her up and make the trip. We structured our lives around her care, and it was working. The low dose of the diuretic completely reversed her huffing, and we eventually found a balance with the staircase. We'd carry her down, but let her walk up on her own to keep her strong. And frankly, she seemed to enjoy the independence of taking herself upstairs. She was still wagging her tail, still engaging, She was still taking time to find a scent in the yard and follow it, focused, meandering across the grass, under a shrub, behind a tree. And when she lost it or grew tired, she'd sneeze as if cleansing her palate and find her way back to the door. She could even occasionally get up on her hind legs, resting her front paws on the cushions of the seats in the kitchen where Jim and I would be with our laptops, just to say hello, see what we were doing, and receive a pet or a scratch behind her ears. She had stopped eating raw hides the prior year, but her interest had suddenly renewed. Biscuits were too difficult for her to manage. Then I discovered sweet potato chews. The first time I gave her one, she looked at me sideways through her left eye, as if to say, where have you been hiding these all my life? We got her through the eye trauma, got her heart sorted to the best of our ability, and took her, every week, for PT. She was stable, and we enjoyed what we had together, grateful we had the means and resources to keep her going with a solid quality of life. Epilogue Because it would have taken time and focus away from our life with Shelby, we didn't go through her medical records from Dr. Lutz until I wrote this episode. I matched every email, our phone records, our notes, and her encounter forms against the medical records we received. I found multiple examples where what had been charted in her official medical record for a particular visit wasn't always what we had said, been told, or had read on Shelby's encounter forms. Although we had brought Shelby to see Lutz for a regular follow-up about her eye drops, she documented we brought her in for cataract follow-up. Although we said Shelby was doing great on her eye drops, she documented she has not been able to see at all recently. Regarding the anesthesia, her encounter form read, Shelby did very well with anesthesia. Yet Lutz verbally told us anesthesia was challenging for her and that her heart was delicate and sensitive. What she charted was the drug she used to sedate Shelby, put her heart into bradycardia. She documented neither the support Shelby required during anesthesia, nor the names of anyone consulted prior to or during the surgery. Neither was there any mention of the special piece of equipment. When I read the note in Shelby's file corresponding to the day, I pointed out they had not given us more than a three-day supply of Remedil the day we took her home from surgery. She had charted, Her owners reported today that Rimadyl was administered for four days total following surgery, but they previously reported administering Rimadyl by mouth at each recheck examination prior to today. We were never specifically asked what meds we were or weren't administering. We simply followed their established published protocol of bringing the meds to them each visit for them to review, modify, or renew. They had overlooked the fact that they had only provided her with a few days' supply. The instructions for that med were for us to administer until it was finished, which we did. Had they properly reviewed Shelby's medications, per their protocols, they should have seen they'd only dispensed enough Rimadill for three days. Had they allowed us to bring Shelby in for the pressure checks we asked for, when it was clear to us something was wrong, they could have realized their error sooner. It was after the Rimadill issue that Lutz began emailing us, memorializing things we'd never discussed as though we had. She continued to paint us as confused, emotional, and incapable of understanding what she was telling us. It was after we pushed back an advocacy of Shelby's welfare and specifically pointed out her incorrect narrative that she dropped Shelby as a patient in the middle of a crisis with no continuity of care. There is not a single record of the phone calls we made to the practice, or emails, or our pleas to bring Shelby in for additional pressure checks. Thankfully, we were wise enough to keep all of our notes. Phone records, emails, insurance claim forms, and every single encounter form. As they say, we have the receipts. It took a team of people to get Shelby through her surgery after Lutz cut her loose. It took Brenda, Nikki, Carrie, and two emergency clinics to get her through. I'm not exaggerating when I say everyone who ever worked with Shelby had the same thing to say. She's a special dog.